Let's go back to Jeremiah. We finished chapter 11 last time, and uh, in chapter 11, to briefly summarize and do a little bit of a recap, talks quite a big deal about the covenant with God, and I think it is obvious in many, many places internally within this book and all the prophecies that it's referring first and foremost to the church. <coughs> If we get as far as chapter 15, you'll see something there that clinches that all over again, that the message is first to the church. Now, we made a covenant with God that we would turn our whole lives over to him, heart, mind, body, and soul, that we would control our every thought, our every action, that we would love him with all our hearts, minds, and beings. That's the covenant we made with him, that we would keep every word of his word. He says three times in the Bible, live by every word of God. Deuteronomy 8-7, Matthew 4-4, Luke 4-4, I think. Live by every word of God and not let any of his words fall to the ground, but that we consider and follow every last one of them. That's the covenant we made. Now, worldwide has gone back to paganism, and they are now changing their name. <clears throat> it's been rumored it would be called the, uh, the GFI, which isn't something in your bathroom that keeps your curling iron from killing you, but the Grace uh, Fellowship International is one word I've heard. Uh, they've saved that on the Internet, I guess, as a domain name among a couple of others. I don't know exactly how it will come out, but... We're all under grace. That's all we have to be concerned about. And that is simply not true. What does God tell all seven churches? He tells them to grow, to overcome, to change. That we are not just under grace so that we don't have to worry about it. What did he tell Joshua there in Zechariah 3, one of the end-time leaders? Diligently obey didn't say you're going to be under grace at the end time so you don't have to worry about anything. So diligently obey. And all through the Bible, <clears throat> that is the message. God is very concerned with the church now that we have, to one degree or another, to whatever degree as individuals and organizations, broken that covenant with God. That we are not living up to what God wants us to do. You look at the church today and what is happening to it, and as, a, as an overall concept, can you say that we're living under grace? The unmerited pardon, forgiveness, and good graces of God. Do you really think that an outsider would look at what is happening to Worldwide Church of God and her daughters today and so those people are obviously living under grace. I don't think so. Most of them would say, look at the mess, look at the confusion, look at the scattering, look at the destruction, look at the fighting, look at the gossip, look at the absolute mess that has resulted in all those people coming together and worldwide and now being blown apart. 
I do not believe we are under the unmerited pardon of God. We are under the penalty for breaking his covenant. And we are suffering as a result of that penalty. God's anger is about to be unleashed on the nations of this world, and particularly Israel. But it has already been unleashed on the church. And it continues unabated. So he said in verse 6, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. We have obviously failed in doing the words of the covenant that we made with God at baptism. This is not a smooth and easy thing to talk about. But it is the only way to resolve the problem. It is the only way we are going to come out of it. I talked with some new people Thursday morning who have been to different organizations, who have been meeting lately with only four couples, or four couples entire, they can't find any place to go. They say everywhere we go, it's just business as usual, going on, drifting along. Nothing stimulates us. Nothing makes us look at ourselves and makes us want to grow and overcome. We're looking for a place to go where we will be pushed and stimulated to grow. And we can't find it. They agree with us on Passover, having heard of it, and having actually studied it out on their own and come to that same conclusion we reached. Now they want to come with us. They're moving to the St. George area, and they think that God may have opened that door to cause them to move to St. George because it's close to us. I found that interesting. Sometimes we get frustrated with ourselves, or you get frustrated with me, and wonder what's going on. But there are some people out there who want to be pushed and prodded because they know they need it and they need to grow and they're not getting that anywhere they go. I recently heard someone here as quoted, and I'm not sure that the quote is correct, because you never know for sure. I have a t-shirt someone gave me which says, you have the right to remain silent, but if you do speak, you will be misquoted and it will be used against you. So, I've told you about that one, and you've probably seen it, but I've worn it a couple times. So, I'm not sure this quote was absolutely correct, but probably fairly close. But the, the, uh, the individual, as quoted, was quoted as saying, we're just waiting for Daryl to chill out. Well, it's going to be a long wait. I have no intention or desire to chill out. God is after the church because we were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, and he couldn't stand lukewarm, so he is spewing us out. Now, what direction do you think God wants us to go? 
Do you think he wants us to chill out and become cold? Or to heat up? Lukewarm is not acceptable to God. Cold is certainly not acceptable. So if I go any direction, it's not going to be toward chilling. It's going to be toward turning it up a notch. Okay? We're always going to kick it up a notch. Whatever we see it needs, that's the way it's going to go, not down a notch. So if you're waiting for me to chill out, I'm praying with all my heart, virtually daily, that God won't let me chill out. So if you want me to chill out, you better pray harder that I will than I am that I won't. So there. Verse 7, again, obey my voice. A conspiracy, verse 9, is found among the men in the church. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words, and went after other gods to serve them. Now, verse 14, I think, is particularly significant when it comes to the church, first and foremost. And it says, Therefore pray not you for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them. That's not just talking about physical Israel and this nation. It's talking about the church of God, which is already in the throes of famine, pestilence, and disease on a spiritual level. That's what it's aimed at. God has unleashed his anger on the church just as he is about to the world. And he says, it will do no good to pray for the church. Not one stone will be left upon another. God is going to tear it clear down to the basic building blocks and rebuild it with those stones which are properly shaped to fit within that structure. That's what he's going to do. That is what he is already in the process of doing. And it is our job to make sure that we are stones fitting for the purpose. That is our daily job, is to knock off the rough places, the unsanded places, and make ourselves fit within the framework of God's covenant so that we will be suitable for building the latter temple. That's our goal, that's our purpose, it's our daily responsibility. It's too late to pray that the church not be kicked apart, isn't it? Wouldn't you say it's a little late to pray that? It's already happened. Still happening, not quite finished, but it's almost done. It's getting there. And it's not going to be doing good at this point to pray that it all come back together. Because God has already showed in Scripture, it's just simply not going to happen. 90% of it is going into tribulation. 10%, almost, will be brought together and build a temple. The last temple before Christ returns. So, don't waste your breath, God is saying, praying for the church as a whole because it's too late. It's already done. And, of course, the same can be said soon of our nation. 
when it starts coming apart and God unleashes the Gentile destroyers on this nation, it's too late to pray. It won't do any good. Then this chapter concluded with a warning for those who might be rebellious and anathoth, and I think God inspired this little village to be named that. It is a field that he miraculously, I think, provided, and it was the answer to a lot of our prayers, but there will be those who are rebellious here as well, and God will take care of them. So, we might as well expect it, know it, that it is going to happen. And if there are those whose attitudes are suffering and they're headed south, uh, God will take care of it in his own time and in his own way. So, let's drop that part there and go to chapter 12. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you, yet let me talk with you of your judgments. Uh, Jeremiah is facing difficulties, and part of it is a result of the end of chapter 11. There were those who did not agree with him, who were waiting for him to chill out or whatever, and were against Jeremiah and what he was preaching and teaching and trying to do. Now, I'm not saying I'm a type of Jeremiah by any means, uh, and I don't even claim to be a prophet. He is the prophet. But I do think that God inspired this village and its name for his own reasons. And there are good ones, and then there are some negative things said as well. And they will all come true here in the end. I have no doubt of that. But Jeremiah was frustrated and upset at the way things were. So he says, first of all, in his prayer, You're righteous, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet, there's some things I'd like to talk with you about. He had his frustrations. Wherefore does the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Now, his message was to take to physical Israel, and by extension to the church today, a message of growing, of overcoming, of getting rid of wickedness, of living by the covenant that he mentioned in chapter 11 that we are committed to keep. And yet he saw all kinds of wickedness and treachery among those people that he was preaching to. Lying, cheating, stealing, deceiving, saying one thing, doing another, saying one thing, nodding your heads in agreement, but believing something else, whatever. He says, you have planted them. Yes, they've taken root. You look at the church, and yes, God called them. He planted them. He caused them to be planted through Herbert Armstrong. And yes, didn't some fall in stony ground, some among thorns, uh, some in good soil, you know, that parable certainly applies. God called them all if they came. But what's happened? You planted them, they took it, taken roots, they grow. Yes, they bring forth fruits of one kind or another. 
You are near in their mouth and far from their range. A lot of people will talk God, they'll talk about God, but how do you control a horse? By the reins. You're riding a horse by the touch of the reins. You impart to that horse where you want him to go. If you want him to stop or go. What you want done. But he said, this people, here in the end time church, and that's who the message is primarily to, are near in our words, but we will not accept the controls of God. We will not go where God asks us to go. Now, I have ridden horses that were poorly trained, or virtually untrained, or who had rebellious spirit and attitudes, who would buck at the slightest chance, had both arms broken by one of those, matter of fact, one time years ago. They told me when I went out, he'll try you sometime during the day. They just knew it. And they put me on him on purpose because they thought it'd be funny to see the preacher fighting the horse. The horse won that day. They all felt bad when I came out with casts on both arms. But they'd had their fun. We've all probably ridden horses. We've ridden some that were hard to control. It's not fun. Now, whether they're actively rebellious or whether they're placid. I remember going up elk hunting. My dad was riding an old fat horse. And her problem was not bucking. Her problem was she was fat and lazy and just simply didn't want to move didn't want to go. And he kicked, and he kicked, and he slapped. And she didn't want to go up the mountain. See, bad horses come in all varieties, all different attitudes. And rebellious people are the same way. Some simply don't want to move from the barn and go anywhere and do anything. Others kick and stomp and buck at direction. And that's what Jeremiah was concerned about. That, you know, we'll talk God, but we're not willing to do some of the things that he says. We're not willing to accept his direction, his guidance, and his word. So many in the church today find the words they want, and they ignore a lot of others. They'll do the things that they agree with, but if they have any disagreement or whatever, they'll find a way around those scriptures. They're far from the reign of God. But you, O Lord, know me. <clears throat> you have seen me and tried my heart toward you. Pull them all out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. Jeremiah says, that I am so frustrated. I just plain had it. I preached and preached and preached, he said, and they won't turn to you. They'll turn with their lips. They'll turn with their words. But they won't make the changes. They won't do it. They won't train their children properly. 
They won't respond to their husbands properly. They won't respond to their wives properly. They won't do the things that God tells us to do. Jeremiah said, just prepare them for the slaughter. I'm so tired of talking to them, it doesn't do any good. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither for the wickedness of them that dwell therein? When will the church as a whole ever wake up and listen and do something? Or is this just going to continue forever? It's a nightmare, isn't it? Aren't we tired of it? Are we tired of the mess? I should hope so. Don't you feel somewhat of what Jeremiah is saying here in his prayer to God? I asked Marla this morning, are people tired of hearing this message that has gone on now for nearly ten years? She says only those that don't want to hear it. Those that know they need to grow and change and overcome are not tired of hearing I told her, I'm not tired of it. I'm tired of the situation. I'm tired of the mess we've got in the church. I know God is going to turn it around for some few, 10%, if they will live up to the words of this covenant. Those are the ones God will draw together to build his temple. But how long? Is this morning going to go on? Jeremiah seemed endless. Well, the wickedness remains. People are not doing the things they need to do. I was reading in Time magazine about a group that has started to try to teach children sex education and how to answer their questions. One of the questions that came up was, the kid said to his parent, well, all those people on TV have sex scenes all the time. Nothing bad happens to them. Why can't I have some fun? How does a parent in this world today answer that question? Of course, Hollywood carefully scripts those things so that they're done, everybody has a good time, and they're lying there speaking peaceably under the sheets next morning. They don't tell you the whole story. They show you what they want you to see in order to break down your moral barriers and destroy this people. That is what they are doing purposely. And the article said that the number of sex scenes on TV has doubled in the past seven years. Doubled in seven years. You know, it doesn't have to be explicit or nude for you to, for kids to get the point of what's going on, does it? First date, second date, what happens? Everybody strips off and jumps in bed. What's the message that Hollywood is trying to project to our people? And do we still watch it? And do we still let our children watch it? How long will the wickedness continue? How long will we continue to, do, to hear and to see evil? How long?
long shall the land mourn, and the herbs of every field wither, for the wickedness of them that dwell therein? Verse 4. The beasts are consumed, and the birds, because they said, He shall not see our last end. Very nature itself is coming apart. All kinds of strange mutations are occurring. And the beasts and the birds of the air are being destroyed because of the way mankind runs the earth. If you have run with the footmen, and they have wearied you, this is God speaking, <clears throat> if you have run with the footmen, and they have wearied in you, then how can you contend with horses? God tells Jeremiah, you know, you're getting frustrated and upset when you're only dealing with soldiers on foot. The real trouble hasn't even come yet. When they send horses, it's hard enough to contend with men on foot. What is going to happen when they come mounted at you? This thing is going to get worse. So far, we are only dealing with the footmen, brethren. The horses are on their way. And if in the land of peace, and we've been dwelling in a land basically of peace, peace on our shores, we'll take peace away from other people on their shores, but so far, for the most part, we've had peace on ours with a couple of aberrations like 911. This is so real today. If you've been wearied in a land of peace, which is what Jeremiah basically was in, the captivity had not yet occurred. So we are a church being pulled apart now, but physically we're still in a land of peace. But that's going to end soon. Wherein you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the swelling of Jordan? Think it was bad living in a peaceful land. What about when Jordan floods? Or might use an analogy today. You thought things were fine in this land. It only happened to Southeast Asian tsunamis or whatever. What will you do when New Orleans is flooded? When the Jordan swells or the Gulf of Mexico comes in on your cities? Then what? Just a small foretaste of what is about to come. One city destroyed. And a little bunch of little towns, but one city. And not even one of our larger ones yet. What will we do then? Think it's bad now. What about when this comes? Want me to chill out or shall we continue reading? Shall we face this? Shall we acknowledge it? Shall we look at our covenant with God and our covenant with His Word? Because we made a covenant with every Word of God. I'm not, brethren, putting this down. I'm warning us of what's coming and what will happen if we don't respond correctly now. And it is going to happen up to nine out of ten in the church, or who were in the church. Nine out of ten. We have a chance to escape <clears throat> if we take the chance. And we don't just mouth words but begin to listen to God at the reins. And Jeremiah is the one who is trying to guide us here today. There are a lot of other places that say about the same thing. Verse 4, or 6, 
or even your brethren in the house of your father. Even they have dealt treacherously with you. says, look, Jeremiah, even those in your own household, those in your own family are against you. I understand that. I have those in my own family who are against me and don't like what I'm doing. So what? God says do it. I'm going to do it. If they don't like it, that's just too bad. Yes, they've called a multitude after you. Not only do they have a bad attitude toward you, but they'll be happy to go around and try to spread that attitude as much as they possibly can. Believe them not, though they speak fair words to you. You realize there's treachery in the heart, even though they might speak and smile to your face. <clears throat> Jeremiah says, I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. Isn't that what Christ told us we would have to do? Give up homes, lands, fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, children. That's what he told us, Jesus Christ himself. But sometimes we're loath to do that. And it's hard, I understand that. But at the same time, it's necessary. So Jeremiah said, I've given up on my relatives. They're against what I'm saying, against what I'm doing. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. There's nothing I can do for them. You know, when Jesus Christ himself went back to Nazareth, he could do no miracles there except heal a few sick folk. He did tremendous miracles elsewhere, but he could not go back to his hometown and do it there because everybody thought, yeah, I know him, that's Joseph and Mary's little bastard. That was the attitude they had toward it, said so in Scripture. It's hard to do anything under those conditions. It really is. So he says in verse 8, My heritage is unto me as a lion in the forest. My relatives are just like a lion after my behind, he says. It cries out against me, therefore have I hated it. He just has to put it aside, he said. Isn't that what God tells us we have to do? We have to forsake all and follow him, no matter what it is. That's what he wishes of us, what he desires of us, is what he tells us we have to do. This is fun. Some of us suffer as a result of it. But I'll tell you what, the reward is going to be great. The reward will be great. Verse 9, my heritage is to me as a speckled bird. The birds round about are against her. Come you, assemble all the beasts of the field, come to devour. What is a speckled bird and what does that mean? It's a little enigmatic, but the force of the context here is that Jeremiah's relatives were gathered around him to pick him apart. He uses a lion in the forest as an example, and speckled bird <coughs> apparently is like a vulture, there to pick the bones. Some translations translate it as a hyena, which is about the same thing as a vulture, only with hair instead of feathers. 
But that's the Arabic word. The Hebrew word is bird of prey, possibly vulture. The church will have birds of prey around her. Verse 10, <clears throat> again showing, it's talking about the church. Many pastors have devoured my vineyard. That speaks of Jeremiah 23, which we'll get to soon, and Ezekiel 34, and Malachi 1, and so on. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. I think pretty well everyone in the church is aware that the ministry misused and abused. If we are not aware of that by now, uh, maybe we're not only chilled out, but we're on a slab in the morgue, totally cold. If you never recognize and realize that that happened to the church. We would have always applied this to the churches of the world 30, 40 years ago. But now I think every member of the church, wherever they are, would apply this first and foremost to the pastors in the church. Right? They have made it desolate. And being desolate, it mourns to me. Isn't the church mourning to God today? This fits so very, very well. Don't each and every one of us mourn to God for the troubles and the trials and the difficulties that have come on the church? If we don't, we don't have a heart of man. We have a heart of stone. We don't feel it. The whole land is made desolate because no man lays it to heart. Very few are willing to take it upon themselves and admit responsibility and accountability for what is going on. You represent a very few, brethren, who are beginning to take on responsibility to yourselves for what has happened. And if we follow through and do something about it on a personal level, God is going to include us in those that he blesses and protects and helps. So, be ready to give your whole heart to God. Lay it to heart. The spoilers are come upon all high places through the wilderness, for the sword of the eternal shall devour from the one end of the land even to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. We want peace. That's one of the greatest things that human beings want. It's one of the fruit of God's Spirit. It's peace. God says he's going to remove, and no one will have peace. We will feel harassed. We will feel put upon. We will feel everyone is against us. We will be troubled and fearful, worried, scared. I don't think any of us like fear and being scared, do we? You don't even like it when someone slips up behind you and yells or something and scares you. Now, that's a, that's a very mild form of fear. But when you fear for your very life that you will be shot or skewered or burned or have your toenails pulled out or whatever, 
my people that hate you. And there'll be no protection against it. You know, we, we feel human liberties are being removed from us today. We scream for the American Civil Liberties Union or some, or the government or somebody to come take care of us. Because we're used to someone being there always to take care of us from cradle to grave. They won't care anymore. They won't be there to do it. They can rape and pillage, destroy, kill, injure at will. Whatever they wish to do, they'll be able to do. No one will have peace except those few whom God protects. They have sown wheat, but shall reap thorns. They put themselves to pain, but shall not profit. Didn't we think we were sowing wheat in the church? Didn't we think we were headed in the right direction, that we could expect a wonderful crop? Didn't we expect to get the phone call and go to a place of safety, be protected, and go into the kingdom of God with no hitch? But what do we have now? A crop of thorns. That's all we got. They put themselves to pain. We went through a certain amount of pain, giving up jobs, giving up Basketball, football, and baseball at school because of the Sabbath. We went through a certain amount of pain to try to go God's way. And yet, we didn't go far enough. We became lukewarm. We became self-satisfied, full of pride, ego, and vanity, and thought we were okay. So it has turned out not to profit as much. And they shall be ashamed of your revenues because of the fierce anger of the Lord. The New King James translates that their prophets. They will be ashamed of their prophets. But that which they've done and tried to do, whether it be physical treasure or spiritual treasure, they'll be ashamed at the paltry amount that is there. Doesn't God tell us, lay up treasure in heaven, not on earth, where thieves break in and steal? And when this began to happen to the church, I think we should be ashamed of the meager prophets that it appears we have in heaven. If there were great treasure we had laid up in heaven, I really doubt we would be suffering what we are suffering today. But we went after the materialistic way of this world in so many ways. And as a result, our spiritual balls aren't full. And God is doing this to us so that we might begin to fill the spiritual vault. To lay up treasure in heaven. Verse 14, Thus says the Eternal against all my evil neighbors that touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Well, we've touched the eternal inheritance, haven't we? 
Haven't we seen what is ahead for those who will obey, who will give their whole heart to God? Yes, we have. Promises of salvation. Promises of no tears, no weeping, no death. Total peace, happiness, and joy in the kingdom of God. We've touched that inheritance. But we haven't been willing to excise the evil from our thoughts and minds and character. Therefore, we are under the curse, not the grace of God. Now, we might individually receive a certain amount of answer, a certain amount of pardon, a certain amount of forgiveness as we go through our lives. But the, the church is not under grace right now. It's under the penalty of breaking the law. That's what the church is under. That is what is happening to us. We had obtained grace through repentance in obedience to God's Sabbath and His holy days and all the words that He had written. He gave us a merited pardon through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, His broken body, and His blood. We have not accepted fully the meaning of His blood or of His stripes whereby we would be physically healed. Today, we place the blame on God that we are not physically or spiritually healed. And the blame is not God. The blame is ours, because we do not walk by faith, and live by faith, and believe God. That's why we're not healed physically or spiritually. Is it God's fault? He told us in the covenant, I am your healer, Psalm 103. But many in the church do not believe in it because they don't see the results much anymore. We used to, and then it basically stopped. Yes, we came under the grace and mercy of God, and we intended. We gave Him lip service and went on about our worldly thinking, doing, and acting in every facet of life. And he has removed his grace, his favor, his pardon, and turned his face from us because he cannot stand the sight of us. That's just reality. We are under the penalty of the law as a church today. If we are going to come back under grace, we're going to have to repent to our toenails and turn to God with our whole hearts, not just with our mouths, and do the things that this book says. Then we will come back under his grace, his mercy, his pardon, and we'll be blessed as no people has ever been blessed. He said it's going to happen if we will obey. Obedience to us is everything. Because without obedience, we will not have the grace of God. We will have the punishment that we have been suffering these last 10, 15, 20 years. 
And not only that, it will get worse. You think the grace of God may be removed from us and his pardon now to the point he said, don't even pray for this people. I'm going to throw them into tribulation. That's where 90% of the church is going. Scriptures are very clear. We've touched the inheritance that God has told his people Israel they could inherit. And now he says, Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. And it shall come to pass, after that I have plucked them out, I will return and have compassion on them. When this is all done, God will return to those who have survived and have compassion and will bring them again, every man to his heritage and every man to his land. Everything that is currently being taken away is going to be restored to those who will repent. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name, the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, if they come to the point they teach morality and they teach honesty, and they teach God's way as diligently as they have taken the people the other way, then God says he will bless. Now, how diligently, brethren, does Hollywood teach you to disobey everything in this book? 24 hours a day. 100, 200, 300, 400 channels. How much does the internet try to pull people away? What did I quote here sometime back that I read? There are 400 million porn channels on the internet. Is it any wonder Isaiah calls it the spider's web? Do you think it is named the web without cause? How diligently are they trying to take us away from the ways of God and take us into the ways of Baal and Satan? Who is Baal? They stay up long hours, working long weeks and months to produce decadent movies that teach our children everything against God. They spend hours designing websites to pull us away in every possible manner from God. They are diligent about it. Now, how diligent should we be in that case, it says, to teach the right way? You want me to chill out? Forget it. I'm told right here that I have to be just as diligent to teach you to do it God's way as they are to pull you the other direction. That means I better work overtime at it. You better, Gordon. You better, Nelson. I know you're on there. We had better make sure that you have more opportunity to hear of God than the world has to hear of Satan's way. That's a mighty challenge in this day and age. 
if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name instead of Baal, then shall they be built in the midst of my people. That is how we ensure that we'll be a part of what God is doing. But if they will not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that people, says the Eternal. And he has almost got the church destroyed. Too late to pray for it. It's almost done. Now he's about to start on the physical nation. And if we've been ripped up spiritually, wait till you see the ripping up physically. It will not be a pretty picture. It will be physical blood now, not just spiritual. The spiritual is more important, and that's why God's dealing with it first. But it's about to turn physical. And 90% of those who went through it spiritually are going to go through it again physically. That's just the way it's going to be. doesn't do any good to pray for the church or the world at this point. It is coming. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. Chapter 13, Thus says the Eternal to me, Go and get you a linen girdle, and put it upon your loins, and put it not in water. So this was a wrapping that went around his waist, his midsection. So I got a girdle according to the word of the Eternal, and put it on my loins. And the word of the Eternal came to me the second time, saying, Take the girdle that you have got, which is upon your loins, and arise, go to Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went and hid it by Euphrates, as the Eternal commanded me. Now this might have seemed strange. He was in the land of Israel, and the Euphrates is a long walk away. But God said, go clear to the Euphrates and hide this linen girdle that you've been wearing in a hole in the rock. And it came to pass, after many days, and prophecy, that's often three years, don't know whether that was the case here or not, but a long time, in other words, that the Eternal said to me, Arise, walk all the way back to Euphrates, and take the girdle from there, which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to Euphrates, and I did, and took the girdle from the place where I had hid it, and behold, the girdle was ruined, it was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Thus says the Eternal, After this manner will I ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. You think the church doesn't have a pride and ego problem? Revelation 3 says it does. And right here we have confirmation of that. God is going to destroy our intellectual and spiritual pride and vanity because knowledge is puffed up. And when that happens, God gets rid of the puffiness. He will humble. If we don't humble ourselves, he will do it to us. We have a chance to humble ourselves now, to be teachable. I find a lot of people are not teachable. They are there to promote their own ideas, and they have a great deal of intellectual and spiritual pride, vanity, and ego involved. And, of course, they'll say that I have the same. Well, I'm trying to deal with mine. I hope you deal with yours. That's all I can say.
We both we both got it. We both got a deal. My problem, as opposed to yours, is that God commissioned me to teach. I have to. Or I will answer to him for that. So it's double jeopardy. This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart, or in their own stubbornness or fantasy world, and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as this girdle which is good for nothing. God says if we walk in our own intellectual, spiritual pride and vanity, we're going to be like a worthless piece of cloth that's been buried. And most of us, if something had been buried many, many days, maybe even years, would not want to pick it up and put it on and wear it. We like it all fresh from the store or fresh from the laundry. We don't like it rotten with holes and stained to wear. But God says, that's the way it'll be. We'll be good for nothing. You know, I don't want Christ to come back and say to me, you're good for nothing. I'd like for him to come back and say, well done, you good and faithful servants. That's what I'd like to hear. But he's going to come back to some and say, you're good for nothing. I have no use for you. Now, when parents tell their children, and some do, you're good for nothing. Now, we may joke about it now and then. That's, I think, okay in the right context without meanness and mean-spirited. We can joke and kid each other some. But for, to really tell your children you're good for nothing just destroys those children. Destroys their attitude. It destroys their desire to be anything. Worthless. Good for nothing. But he said, that's what this people is becoming to me. He wants us to repent and become worth something. Treasure in heaven. For as the girdle cleaves to the loins of a man, you know, we make things to fit so that they stay on and we put belts on or whatever and buttons and zippers to hold our clothes together so they stay on. For as the girdle cleaves to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave to me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, says the Eternal, that they might be to me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory. But they would not hear. Now he's comparing his people, including the church, and most specifically the church, to a piece of clothing that he designed to wear that could be a glory to him, a praise to him, a wondrous thing to him, that he would want to show off to everyone and say, this is my garment. These are my people. That's what he had in mind. But he says it's like an old piece of clothes that's been buried in the ground and stinks and is rotten and good for nothing. But destruction. That's not the way he wanted it. That's not the one he had in mind. 
but that's what we've become. I made them for a praise and a name for myself and for a glory, but they would not keep. Therefore, God says, this is what I had in mind, this is what I've got. All right, Jeremiah, as a result, that is cause and effect here. Therefore, or because this has happened, here's what I want you to say. Therefore, you shall speak to them this word. Here is God's pronouncement on us based on what he sees in us today. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they shall say to you, Do we not certainly know that every bottle shall be filled with wine? That doesn't sound like too bad a news, does it? God says, You're to tell them every bottle will be filled with wine. Well, how do we know that every bottle will be filled with wine? Maybe there's a certain amount of expectation there. That's not exactly what God has in mind as we read on. Then shall you say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne, the leaders, the rulers, the priests, the ministry, and the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. We're speaking spiritually here. We are spiritually drunk because of the things that we have imbibed. God said, I'm going to make you like a bunch of staggering drunks. We've seen drunks, have we not? Staggering out of the bar, staggering out of the, down the street, staggering to their car, not able to control themselves falling down, hugging their toilet. Not a pretty picture. I'll fill them with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together. Sometimes drunks get in their cars and they smash into each other and kill each other because they cannot control themselves. God is showing here a lack of spiritual control, a lack of ability to be able to go where you think you're headed. Drunks can't always determine where they are or where they need to be. They're out of control. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but destroy them. Sound like they're under grace, grace, grace? What's going to happen to Worldwide now that they have become, if that's the title they take, it'll have something to do, however it comes out, with grace and fellowship and everything is okay. Let's just all get together and make a little sun worship prayer circle and cry out to God and Satan will answer. 
Let's cry, grace, grace, because we're part of the grace evangelical movement. That is satanic and Protestant. It is a total lack of understanding of what God's grace really is. And thinking that we can do our thing and have the grace of God. It doesn't work that way. I will have no mercy, but I will destroy them. It's already happening to the church, brethren. You and I have been part of it. And it's about to happen to the nation. Hear you and give ear. Don't turn this aside. Listen, he says. We've heard it now in this group many, many times. We've responded in part, but we haven't responded as fully as we need to by any means. Be not proud. There is still an awful lot of pride left in us. An awful lot of our own way, our own thinking. God has revealed to me, or God has shown me, or God has done this. And it is frustrating that almost every time we encounter someone whom God says, who says or believes that God has shown them something special. They're on their way out. They are so full of vanity, spiritual pride, and ego that they will not survive. They'll go their own way. Hear, give ear, be not proud. Listen. Absorb. Don't reject. For the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the eternal your God before he caused darkness and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains and while you look for light he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. Like a bunch of drunks staggering around on a mountain at night. It's bad enough to be on a mountain in the cold at night without being drunk. It's even worse if you are. But if you will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. And my eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Carried away captive to the world spiritually and soon to be carried away captive as physical slaves in other nations. The story of the Gentiles is on his way. It's rising up in Europe the last few weeks, riots. It's rising up everywhere. It will rise up here, and it will carry us away. Say to the king and to the queen, the leaders, the rulers, humble yourselves. Sit down, for your principalities shall come down, even the crown of your glory. The glory of the church organizations will come down, and the glory of our physical government and nation will come down. Our president and his administration are at a very low ebb right now. Will it recover? Maybe shortly, maybe for a little while, I don't know. Maybe it'll just go on down from here. We'll see. Verse 19, the cities of the south shall be shut up and none shall open them. 
almost gives me a chill thinking of New Orleans, the city of the South, which has been shut up or shut down. Will it ever really reopen? Will it ever be what it was? Only time will tell. But it's, it's ironic that this verbiage and this wording is right here when this has just happened to one of our cities of the South. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. Lift up your eyes and behold them that come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? What has happened to the church? The destroyer of the Gentiles is coming. Where has the beautiful flock gone? Diminished, decimated, almost gone. What would you say when you, he shall punish you? For you have taught them to be captains, and as chief over you, shall not sorrows take you as a woman in, tra in travail? Haven't we been told all these years you're to be kings and priests in the world tomorrow, and we're here in training to be kings and priests? And how hard do we really work at it? Even in the physical monarchies of this world, from the time a child is born, he is, as soon as he can be taught anything, he's taught how to be a part of royalty. They go to school. They go to classes. They have a bevy of teachers to teach them everything that a royal personage should do and should not do. They spend hours and hours drilling on just the right way to dress, just the right way to eat, just the right way to react just the right way to address one another and the peasantry. They go through grueling, long days being taught what they ought to be as physical monarchs. How hard do we work at being kings and priests in the kingdom of God to rule the entire universe? or at least the world. Do we work as hard by comparison? Maybe there's some things we could learn and how hard we work at it. How hard does God tell us to work at it? I go back to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. Not to allow our minds to stray into areas they should not be. That is a pretty high standard. That's as high a standard as you can draw. How much higher can it be than to bring every last thought into captivity? Humble yourselves and sit down. It's coming apart. We did not do it with our whole heart. We did not seek God as silver and gold. We were half-hearted about it. Can anyone say they weren't half-hearted about it? Now, we might have thought we were pretty zealous. But when you use the standard that I have just mentioned, how wholehearted are we based on that standard? Do we have some growth to do? It's very difficult. It is a daily fight. But it's something we should be conscious of all day long, every day. Do we see it in ourselves? Do we catch ourselves? 
with our minds straying in areas they should not go? I do every last day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't have to check my thinking and say, Where did, how did my mind go there? How did I let that happen? Or, man, what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about the wrong thing, in the wrong way. And somebody told me she didn't have that fight. I thought, where have you been? I know the individual pretty well who did that, and I know they have some problems. They're either living in a fantasy world and not recognizing their own pride, envy, and vanity and ego, because there's not one of us that doesn't sometime during every last day have his mind go the wrong place. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. Could you be candid and honest here? Is there anyone here who doesn't find their mind or their thoughts going somewhere they shouldn't be? I'll give it a minute while you think that over. No. Attitudes? You ever have to fight attitudes? Every day. We'll get in a negative, wrong attitude so easily. Down on somebody. Whatever it is. It's so easy to get in negative attitudes. And then they fester. I tore up my thumb pretty good yesterday on a piece of metal. Now it may just heal. Or if I don't treat it right and I get a lot of germs in there, it may fester. It may blow up twice its size. I don't know. I have no idea yet. It just happened yesterday. Sometimes you get a thorn in your flesh. And it'll fester. Turn pussy. That's the way attitudes are. You can just let a little splinter of wrong thought in your head. And first thing you know... You've got a full-blown infection. It happens so easily. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? Look at the ministry today and they look around. Man, it's hard to drum up a beautiful flock anymore, isn't it? You have taught them to be captains and a sheep over you, verse 21. Shall not sorrows take you as a woman in travail? You're headed for birth pain, he says. Now, God did not intend from the beginning for there to be pain in birth. He didn't intend that. Eve should not have had birth pains. None of you women were ever intended to hurt and to tear in birth. God never intended that. He intended birth to be painless. He intended, when Adam and Eve were created and put in the garden, that they would never have any pain, any hurt, any remorse, any guilt, any fear, any insecurity. Because he offered them that Garden of Eden 
and I believe fully would have offered them life eternal had they not sinned. In other words, they should have been able to go from that Garden of Eden into the kingdom of God eternally without pain, without fear, without hurt. But because they sinned, one of the penalties that was given was that a woman would hurt in childbirth. And I think that there's a very deep symbolism there. That we, as human beings, who have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, cannot enter the kingdom of God and be born into his kingdom without pain. The reason you women suffer in childbirth is because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and it is very difficult and painful to enter the kingdom of God. And he carries that whole analogy through about being begotten of the Spirit and later born into the kingdom, and that through much tribulation and through many trials, through much pressure, and refining as silver and gold that we would enter. It could have been painless. And every time you have a baby today, it is to remind you and to remind your husband and all mankind that that pain is because of sin. And all women have suffered and experienced it ever since. The church is called the mother of us all in Galatians, and the church will not see childbirth of its children into the kingdom of God without a great deal of pain. And the church is suffering a great deal of pain today. And God likens it to the travail of childbirth. Many, many times throughout the prophecies. We've seen it in many places. I could do a two-hour sermon on it right here, go from Scripture to Scripture to Scripture, showing how the church today is pictured as a woman in childbirth. We've been there and won't go there now. But won't the sorrows take you as a woman in travail? You can be pregnant, and you know it's coming, especially if you've been there before. There's nothing you can do about it, and suddenly it's going to happen, isn't it? You'll, you'll get to nearly to that point, and then you get the first one. And you know where it's going from there. That's the way the church is right now. And if you say in your heart, why do these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity are your skirts discovered and your heels made bare. We ask, why has this happened to the church? Many, many people have asked that, and very few have found the correct answers. It was those sinning way of the sins. It was their fault. Not mine, theirs. That's the overall conclusion most have come to, or the devil made me do it. Or no, not, no, they don't say that. The devil made them do it. Because none of us are personally responsible, are we? Not in the eyes of most of the church. If you say in your heart, why are these things happening? 
What's going on here? God says, the greatness of your iniquity is the reason your skirts are being lifted up and everyone can see your private parts, to put it the way God does, quite bluntly. We try to hide, but God says, I'm going to discover your secret parts to the whole world. And your heels may bear around. There's a crude expression about loose women that goes around the bars and in our society about round-heeled women. In other words, real easy to push over. That's the way God depicts the church and the nation. Real easy to push over and be led into sin. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? He's one color. Can he change that color to another color? Or the leopard, his spots? Can a leopard change his skin so that he's suddenly all one color? Or is he going to remain spotted? Then you may also do good that are accustomed to do evil. God says if we have lived in this society and in this culture, it is going to be just as hard to become what we ought to be as it would for one of us to change our skin color or a leopard to change his hide to a different pattern or no pattern. Now, that's kind of a tough assignment, isn't it? I've never really talked to a leopard, but if you were to ask him to change his spots, he wouldn't have the first clue about how to go about it. Now, Michael Jackson is an example of a man trying to change the color of his skin. He's trying to become a rich white girl. And he started out a poor black boy. And he made a mess. He made a mess. He did not appreciate or be thankful for what he was and is trying to become something else. Now God tells us we should not appreciate what we are, and that we should become something else, but it'll be just as hard for a leper to change his spots or Michael Jackson to become whatever he's trying to become and failing miserably at. I think we're going to need help. We're going to need the help of Almighty God. We can't do it on our own. Anybody who tells you Christianity is easy Referring to this very verse right here. You see why it is such an uphill struggle for me to change myself to do things the way God would want me to and why it is so hard for me to convince all of you that you need to change your dress, your food, your thoughts, your habits, your business practices, any and every part of us that has come out of this world. We are so worldly. We are so steeped in Satan's way of thinking and man's culture and society that it's just like trying to change the spots on a leopard 
for us to change it. We resist, we fight it, we find excuses, we don't think it's important, whatever it might be, or it's just Daryl's idea. And if you do it, then you're a Darylite. Begin to hear that. You know, like the old Armstrongites. Whatever. I'm trying to get us to be Christites. To think and act like Jesus Christ. That's what we need to do. And we're a long way from it. Do you think that there is anything salvageable in this worldly culture that God would not preserve and protect it? God says over and over again he is going to absolutely wipe out American culture from the face of the earth. And all of man's cultures from the face of the earth. He makes that very clear. So why do we fight it? Why do we fight turning loose of it? It's just the way we've always thought. It's the way we've always acted. It's the way we've always been. It's the American way. And we don't want to give it up. Now, if it's as hard as the Ethiopian changing his skin or the leopard his spots, if I'm going to get me changed, and I'm going to help you change from this evil way that our people and this nation live, it doesn't happen overnight. You have to keep working at it. So if you expect me to chill out, you might as well just give it up and go somewhere else. And I'm not blustering, I mean that. If you cannot accept these words of Jeremiah that I'm reading, and those words of Isaiah, and those words of Daniel, and those words of Jesus Christ, and Paul, and James, and John, and everyone else who wrote in the Bible, if you cannot accept me reading these for what they say, then you need to go somewhere where you can grow. If this is not stimulating, encouraging, inspiring, and helpful, and helping us to face and deal with the fact we have not reached God's standard, then you need to find somebody that can do that for you. Maybe I haven't raised the standard high enough yet. Because some are frustrated. Some are negative attitudes. Some want me to chill out. Well, I don't intend to, so maybe you better go find somebody that's already chilled. There are a lot of different places you can go in the church today. I don't know whether you'll be challenged. I don't know whether you'll be stimulated. I don't know whether you'll be stomped on. I don't know whether you'll be encouraged. Or whether you'll just be allowed to drift along. But I think that we need to work as hard at it and getting unaccustomed to evil and accustomed to good and change our spots. 
But God says, because it is that hard for us to change, verse 24, Therefore will I scatter them as the stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness, like tumbleweeds across the prairie. This is your lot, the portion of the measures, of your measures from me. God says, I am going to bring on you what you deserve. Because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore will I discover your skirts upon your face. I'll blow your dress right up in your face, and they'll look at your lower end instead of your upper end. That's what God's going to do to us as a society and a church. That your shame may appear. I have seen your adulteries and your names, the lewdness of your whoredom, and your abominations on the hills in the fields. All over our country, we are an immoral people. We like to brag about our past. We like to talk about the things that we have done. We like to continue to do them. God has seen it, and he's sick. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! Will you not be made clean? When shall it once be? When will it ever happen that you are made clean? It's difficult. It's hard. But if you want to be a king and a priest in the world tomorrow, you're going to have to be made clean. You're going to have to bring your thoughts into captivity and your actions according to these words. That's the covenant we made with God. And if we expect him to live up to his half of it, we had better live up to our half of it. Pretty dire message, brethren, but nobody ever said it'd be easy. And anything that's worth having is worth working for. And I think working for the kingdom of God is certainly the thing we ought to be working the hardest for. Because it's not easy to do. If anybody says Christianity is easy and it's a shoe-in, I don't think you can find scriptures that agree with that. God says obey, change, overcome, and grow, and I will give you my kingdom.